Oh, good day, you gandy dandies. Wrap your lips around the podcast, pun it. And satiate your aching tongues with the soothing broth. What's the crack? You ball boys and girls, how are you getting on? I've got a special podcast for you this week. Because it contains an interview with none other than Hollywood actor Killian Murphy. And I know I made a promise before that I wasn't going to have like live podcast interviews as part of the regular Wednesday podcast. But this doesn't count because it wasn't recorded in front of a live audience. It was recorded in a living room. So it maintains sufficient fidelity to qualify as a podcast hug. And Killian Murphy has got a very soothing voice. He's got a cork lilt. A gravelly cork lilt. Also, I promised last week that this podcast would be released on Monday morning. And it is not Monday morning, it's Wednesday morning. You haven't gone mad. It's actually Wednesday morning. What happened is that I reneged on my promise. But for good reason. I was visited in a dream by the otter, Yorty Ahern, who was the patron saint of this podcast. And he had two fists full of squirming minnows and made eye contact with me and urged me not to interfere with the podcast scheduling. He urged me that to release a podcast on a Monday and not a Wednesday could create an environment of chaos that would upset the balance of the podcast so I didn't do you know I was just like right well if that otter is visiting me in a dream to tell me this then I better listen to him so you're getting the podcast on a Wednesday and the universe you know the universe has been returned to a level of balance there's there's no potential chaos but I'm sure there is an alternative universe where this podcast was released on a Monday and I'm sure that universe is in utter chaos or utter chaos <laughs> alright um, if this is your first time listening to the Blind Boy podcast go back to the start you absolute prick because we've developed something we've developed a rhythm do you know we're up to 120 beats per minute here you need to go back to the start where we were 80 beats per minute, you know. We're playing 12 inches. You need to go back and listen to the LP. I had a good bit of crack this week. I've been writing furiously for my second book. Um, As you know, my first book of short stories, The Gospel According to Blind White, was reprinted last week it's doing fabulously it's back in the bestseller charts which I'm very grateful for thank you very much to everybody for going out and buying the book of short stories but I'm writing the second book as we speak and I've just been getting back into flow and it's fucking fantastic I'd been struggling a little bit and the reason I was struggling is just because when I released the first book there was feedback you know mostly positive feedback but some negative but it doesn't matter I've said it before feedback of any description can throw you off kilter if you are creative because I don't know re- reading about you know, positive feedback is to be honest is a bit more can be more damaging I think with negative feedback, you can actually say to yourself, fuck off, I don't give a shit about your opinion. You wanted to read a different book. I, I didn't write the book you wanted to read. I wrote the book I wanted to read. But with positive feedback, you've got people saying nice things about the thing that you made. And what can get freaky is when the things that people like about the thing you created are not necessarily the things that you yourself as the artist think are the good things and that can throw your kind of your creative locus of evaluation off balance 
So I've been staying away from like reading Amazon reviews or anything like that and just getting right back into the centre of flow when I'm writing. And I wrote something today where I entered a waking dream state, which is exactly what I'm looking for. A complete state of daydream where I leave present reality and channel words through my fingers but there's a sense of control but it's the type of control whereby you're not aware of it it's like like the control you'd have over a bicycle if you were cycling, cycling a bike you know if you think of the the physics of cycling a bike you know it's it's quite uh, demanding you know the way you're shifting your body weight your muscles um, going on this fucking you know this this lump of, of, of iron down the road on tyres there's a lot of complicated physics going on and a lot of muscles being engaged but you do it autonomously but if you start thinking about how you're actually staying up on that bike you'll fall on your hope and break your two front teeth so that's what writing is like a little bit it's I enter a waking dream state and allow the story to reveal itself to me but my unconscious mind is steering this waking dream into something which has aesthetic beauty and structure. It's the only way I can describe it. But I had a good lash of that today. And it felt fucking invigorating. It felt enlightening. After a good hour or two of flow, you don't give a shit about nothing. Do you know what I mean? You become invincible. It's like you... you for me, it's like I achieve... Um, just a pure state of fucking kind of elevated consciousness during flow. So every, regular everyday bullshit that might irritate me simply doesn't. Because I've uh, sat at the seat of my own brain. Jesus Christ, I sound like I'm up my own hope this week, lads. I wasn't actually visited by an otter in a fucking dream. There was an issue with a, a USB key. So I couldn't release the podcast on Monday. But it sounds better when I say that I was visited by a fucking otter. And and he told me things in my dream. But I can't let you think that because it's too irrational. I'm not going to allow the uh, release of a podcast to depend upon whether or not an otter visited me in my dreams. That's Marty Whelan shit. That's the type of shit he gets up to. So the, the interview that I'm going to be playing with Killian Murphy... Um, you know, it's, it is fully agenda-driven, alright, let's be honest. The reason that Killian Murphy is appearing on this podcast is because we have an upcoming referendum in this country, um, and it is a re- referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment, which is an amend- amendment in the Constitution from 1983, which prevents uh, women and people who can get pregnant from having abortions for whatever reason they would need them and there are 10 women a day having abortions in Ireland by illegal means whether that be travelling to leave the country or whatever and on top of that there's a huge amount of people taking fucking abortion pills which just simply isn't safe so Terminating pregnancy is heavily criminalised in this country and it is hugely unsafe. And not only is it unsafe, it's undignified, it's ethically unequal, it takes rights away from the pregnant. So all lot of things wrong with it. And the deadline to register to vote is the 8th of May. And I'd like to see, men in particular... Okay, like, I don't think I need to convince any fucking women about the Eighth Amendment because women are quite informed around pregnancy and the issues that can go with it, but us lads are not. Um, I'm certainly not, to be honest. I'm learning quite a lot of new stuff recently because I've never had to think about it. I'm never going to give birth. Do you know what I mean? But... I do feel quite strongly about repealing the eighth because I want to live in a more compassionate society. Um, if you yourself listening, if you're not, if abortions are something that you're just like, no, not into them, you, you can still hold that opinion 
and have that opinion respected while w- without removing choice from other people to have that. And one thing I would say to you too is that keeping the Eighth Amendment in Ireland is not going to stop any fucking abortions. Abortions are still going to keep happening. All the Eighth Amendment does is it prevents safe abortion. It's all it does. Um, and Killian Murphy feels the same. So, what happened is, about a week ago, I was... I had a lot of lengths of carpet to remove from my studio. Some lengths of carpet and a lot of cardboard. And I wanted to take them to the Limerick City dump. So I gave my ma a call, because she has a car. And I loaded a, a, a lot of carpet and cardboard into the back of the car, and we went to Limerick City dump. And while I was at the the barricade of the dump, and my ma in the driver's seat was speaking to the man, who, the, the dump custodian, I don't know the official title, but I'm going to call him a dump custodian, because that's a cool name. But anyway, my ma was talking to that person and my phone started ringing. It was, a, it was a number I didn't know and I picked it up. It was Killian Murphy. And, and I, and now this was two weeks after fucking Conor McGregor had mailed me out of nowhere when I was trying to put LED lights up in my studio and sent some choice words my way. So I'm going, ah oh, fuck, what does Killian Murphy want? What have I done now? But it was Killian Murphy... And the artist, Yvonne McGuinness, and the journalist, Michelle Darmody. And all three of them were on the phone to me, going, Hey, blind boy, what's the crack? Can we talk to you about something? So I'm like, yeah. Now, meanwhile, my ma is chatting to the dump custodian. Turns out, to bring a few rolls of carpet and some cardboard to fucking Limerick dump cost 25 euros. I'm on the fucking phone. My ma has to pay the 25 quid. I didn't have it to pay her back. So technically, Killian Murphy owes my ma 25 quid. But I digress. So the, the nature of the phone call was, Blind by, um, we've been listening to your podcast, all of this. Would you be interested in collaborating with Killian in making, first and foremost, uh, one or two little videos, uh, produce them ourselves, put them out, send them to fucking whatever website wants them with the specific goal of getting lads in particular to register for the referendum and to vote yes to repeal the 8th amendment so immediately I'm like fuck yes absolutely I would love to do that that sounds fantastic because one of my concerns is like I'm trying my best to get to lads but the thing is my audience Sometimes I feel like I'm kind of preaching to the choir, you know. And the type of lads that I reach are already kind of, you know, already kind of left-leaning and informed and stuff like that. But Killian Murphy is the star of Peaky Fucking Blinders, which is very fucking, it's huge, it's massive. And it has a lot of listeners in Ireland. And... Or sorry, a lot of viewers in Ireland. And it's the type of lads who like who aren't necessarily going to be fucking listening to me. You know, the lads going around with the fucking flat caps and the Peaky Binders ha- haircuts who look up to Tommy Shelby. So I'm going, brilliant. We can get Tommy Shelby talking about why the Eighth Amendment matters to young lads. So I'm like, yes, let's do this. This will be brilliant. So we did. And we released a video last week, a two-minute video of myself and Killian having a chat about why voting is important. And that performed fantastically. And then I said, let's do some stuff for the podcast too. And to be honest as well, I'm very humbled that... I'm very humbled that Killian is choosing this podcast as the platform that he'd like to use, that he's choosing to use, because... Jesus Christ, he could go on, you know, he could fucking call up Jimmy Fallon and beyond that do you know what I mean or Graham Norton or whatever he wants the Late Late Show and he's chosen this podcast so that, that's that's pretty cool and as well he doesn't do a lot of interviews you know he's one of the last celebrities that maintains a private life 
and isn't interested in the spotlight. He just does his job and then goes quiet, which I massively fucking respect. So in the following interview I'm going to play you, we got to speak about the Eighth Amendment democracy. But obviously, while I have someone of Killian Murphy's stature to interview, I also ask him about his artistic process as an actor and the stuff that I'm interested in, you know? Because why not? Um, Before you listen as well, it's worth pointing out that during this interview, I wore my plastic bag. For this podcast, I wear a special knitted bag that has decent fidelity and you don't hear it. But when I wear the plastic bag, it's very rustly. So that's the sound that you're hearing. It is the the sound of my plastic bag. God bless. So, Killian, mm-hmm. is Jerry Adams in the IRA? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. I'm here with Killian Murphy. Killian, you're an actor. You're a Hollywood actor, but you're from Douglas. <laughs> Actually, Black Rock. Black Rock. Yeah. You started off as a musician. You were involved in bands. And what I want to know is like, I don't know, like if the music came to you first, what, what is the similarity between the performative element of being a musician and then transferring those skills into acting? Um, yeah, interesting. I think uh, that it was probably to do with just wanting to perform. Mm-hmm. You know, and music was the first thing that I experienced in the house. And, you know, you can you can... If you, someone gets you a guitar, then you can go away and learn that on your own. And then there were my brothers, well played, so we used to play it together. And there was a lot of music around. We go to a lot of like trad sessions when we were kids, so it was very much there. And that so that was the first thing where it became like a form of expression, or you know, like playing music live was the biggest buzz you could yeah. possibly get. And then we we took that quite seriously. For, uh, you got signed and everything. Well, we were offered a record deal, yeah. By who? Acid Jazz Records. And would you have been around, like we'll say, Sultans of Ping? They would have been the big Cork band at the time. And the Franco Walters, yeah. And Franco Walters as well. Yeah. Were you part of that buzz? They were They were ahead of us. They were about, like, I don't know, five or six years okay. ahead of us. Yeah. And who, like, who would you have been listening to musically growing up? Those lads, they were big influence on us. But surely you had like <clears throat> Bowie or someone. Yeah, or the or Beatles, like, I suppose. I've always said that. The Beatles were the beginning for me, really. And what would you, uh, out of the Beatles, like, would it be the earlier stuff, the, the mad or later stuff? I suppose as a, the earlier stuff. But I, like my dad would have had the, the greatest hits in the car. And yeah. Stuff, you know? And would you be more of a Lennon or a McCartney man? I don't know. It's controversial, isn't it? I, it is. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I like both, you know. And I think what they were amazing the way they could, they sort of, that classic thing of going, you know, he writes that song, I write that song, and they, they, it was and the, the subtle, perfect. the competitiveness, yeah, that's you hear in the different songs. It is. I like that's it. That's it. Yeah, I like that about the beat. I like being able to listen and go. I know well that's a McCartney yeah. song, and it has that extra layer of melody. Yeah. But then the Lennon thing is not quite as melodic, but there's a bite in the lyrics. You could that's tell that he thing. was listening to Dylan. He wanted to be a bit more political. Yeah. Do you know? And they pushed each other that way. But you know, McCartney was the kind of avant-garde one. McCartney was the one who introduced them to all that art scene at the time. And Go away, really? Yeah, that's kind of not that well known. And then Lennon fully embraced it, you know, but he was very, you know, experimental. Um, and of course, of. you know, fucking George Martin gets get written out quite a bit as well. Like, I mean, when it came to Sgt. Peppers, George Martin was the one who was like, here, look at these things, they're called synthesizers, lads. Yeah. Do you know, and the boys were going, what's this? And yeah. Mellotrons and all that carry on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then when you like to, to get into acting, did you find that, like, did you train as an actor? No, no. Just came naturally? Well, no, I, I think I was curious about it. You know, that's the thing. I think you have a curiosity about, I was very curious about theatre, I was curious about film. So you begin to kind of explore it. And there was a brilliant theatre company, still is a brilliant theatre company in Cork called Kirkadurka Theatre Company. They make amazing site-specific work. So I saw a show of theirs when I was 17. Everyone knows the story. And I, it was um, The Clockwork Orange in... Mm-hmm. in, in uh, Sir Henry's. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> Sir, I love Sir the way Henry's. you say it in the car. You can't say <laughs> Sir Henry's without putting the car lilt on the end of it. Which is no, no Sir longer Sir Henry's, there. the ball and chain. <laughs> Sir Henry's. It's gone. Did you see anything class in Sir Henry's? Did I see anything class? A lot of DJs, you know, we kind of at the, at the sort of... You didn't get the... Or she'd have been too young for the Nirvana. Nirvana. Sonic didn't see Nirvana there, no. So you, I could say I did, but I didn't. So you, you, tell me about what you were saying there with the uh, Karkadarka. Yeah, so I saw that play and it was transformative in that because I'd never been to theatre before and it was like wild and uh, you know like it was 
promenade and it was smoke machines of fellas and stilts and it was like techno music and guys with Mohicans and, and, and I went, wow, theatre can be like this. Was, it, was this a site-specific performance at Clockwork Orange? Well, they took over Sir Henry's, like, you know. So you're there, you're present. And you're it's walking around, around you. and, yeah. Yeah, see, that's class. It was I mean, amazing. It was kind of a kind of legendary production, you know. Um, and you, so did you have a sense that when you went to this, it's like, all right, whatever about a bit of music now, I want to be, I want to be getting stuck into this? Uh, no, I didn't want to close the door on the music, but I was like, wow, this is very, very interesting. And these yeah. guys are very, you know, really unafraid about the sort of theatre they're making. And, and, and it, this is the other thing, it was like there was loads of young people in there. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, like teenagers and people in their young 20s, you know? Which is, yeah, there you go. That's the, like, for me, the purpose of site-specific work is... There, there's a problem with a lot of, with a lot of art where it's, it can be quite stuffy yeah. and it can be very exclusive. Yeah. And people don't feel like going to the theatre is something that all posh people do. Yeah. Not young people who want to have a bit of crack. Yeah. But then you start throwing Clockwork Orange into Sir Henry's. Yeah. Then it's like, hold on a minute, this is just a rave, a different, yeah. a different type of rave. And, and, it, that's, and it, like, it really, really affected me profoundly at that, at that point. And I think, you know, I always say about theatre, if, if your first experience is amazing, you'll keep on going for the rest of your life. If your first experience is terrible, you'll, you'll, you'll never go again. Yeah. Um, which kind of takes me on to, like, with that site-specific way of working, right? Mm-hmm. One of the, my favourite things that you've done is win the Shakes the Barley, which oh, was yeah. Ken Loach, yeah. who I would class as, you know, he, he's a site-specific, socially engaged director. Yeah. Do you know? Um, he's all about using the place, using mm. local people. Like, what was it like for your process as an actor? Like, did you find it easier as, because you were untrained mm. to be working with Ken Loach? And what, like, what was it like? What was the crack? Well, first of all, he, I mean, he... I think he's one of the greatest filmmakers, kind of living filmmakers yeah, absolutely. That, um, that we have. And, um, and his work, you know, is very political and it wears its message very clearly on its sleeve, you know. Um, but the performances that he gets from the actors and the way the films... Yeah, how does he do it? Like, Well, it, 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 his method is, is kind of unique, but it's quite well known, is that he... We never get the script, so you never... Know, does the script exist? A script exists. But is it like a script or like a Larry David guide? No, it's completely written. It's not improvised or devised, it's written. But the actors aren't given the script. We spend a lot of time, sort of, I knew kind of, I knew my character was a doctor, but I didn't really know what sort of, where his politics lay until as, as the film progressed. And, but then you sort of, you're... Events, so you're finding that yourself. Yeah. So that's why, the, that's why the performances are so real, because events unfold in front of your eyes as, and you react in an emotional, non-intellectual way. And that's why the truth oh, exists. Oh, Christ. <laughs> you know? And um, how is Ken Loach doing that? Like, is Ken, like some directors are shouty. Mm-hmm. We'll say, I, I, you know, uh, Kubrick on the set of... Um, oh, what's the one? Jack Nicholson the with a hatchet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, he, he, like, the stories about him there, he, he was nasty. He was screaming at uh, the, the actors and actresses, getting emotional reactions mm. out of him. Is Ken Loach a, a compassionate, empathic director? Yes. That's in what he in does. fact, he's so quiet and so mild mannered, you hardly know he was there until it gets to the work. And he has a crew that have worked with him for years and years, so he had this kind of telepathic kind of understanding of in shorthand. But like, some, like music, that's quite musical. It is. Like that's, that's improv right there. That's playing with a, with a band, throwing an eye over, understanding. Yeah, and trust, you know. Yeah. But sometimes I remember doing scenes. He would never say action. He would say off you go, and then he would uh, he wouldn't even look. So he'd just listen. Okay. Uh, do you think to him not saying action is that the word action could be anxiety triggering yes, for an actor? Exactly. Exactly. Well, wow. no cut and no like marks on the set where you have to hit marks or anything like that. So it's a sense of having a bit of crack and in, in, encapsulating the crack and yeah, bringing it in and just being honest, you know, and not there's no like. If you look in his films as well, a lot of the actors sort of trip over their lines and talk the way people talk. Like, that's reality. the beauty of it. Yeah. That's what I love. I, I, that's, when I look at a Ken Loach film, that's, I get a literary vibe from it. Yeah. Do you know? It, it's because, and I'm surprised to find out that there actually scripts do exist. I thought it'd be more guidelines, yeah. you know, and a lot of it is in the responsibility of the, of the actor's mouth, you know? Um, so one thing I want to kind of move on to, right, is you as Killian Murphy, right, you're fairly quiet. Yeah. You're the type of actor... You do your job, and that's it. You act, and we'll say the private life of Killian Murphy, or what—that's that, very much. You try and keep that mm-hmm. 
away from things. You're away from the fucking spectacle yeah. of being a celebrity, which is something myself I respect a mm-hmm. lot, obviously, because I've bag in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But as well, I just I just like the fact that um, if you were more public, if you were more red carpety, played the ball a bit more, it would probably have better, greater benefits for your career. But you choose not to because you value having a fucking private life. Yes, but uh, it's also in terms of the 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 sort of like the work or the craft or whatever you how, whatever you want to call it without sounding like like a wanker. Is that you? Don't mind sounding like a fucking wanker. Man. <laughs> is that you? Is that the less people know about you, surely logically, the the easier you can inhabit another character. That seemed to be always really logical. So that that was that's kind of one of the main reasons. Also, you know, it's not my natural habitat kind of talking about myself. I don't really enjoy it. But, yeah. but, but in terms of the work, that has always been a sort of a truism like that. Let the work speak to mind the person behind it. Well, yeah, but the less the person knows about you, surely they'll believe more about you as somebody else. And like that as well, like, I mean, that's, that's a, it's an old, it's a thing that used to work more in the old school. Like if you think of the likes of Lou Reed, Bob Dylan, right? They were able to keep a mis- mystery around themselves and mm. become Bob Dylan, the character. Yeah. But... <clears throat> nowadays in 2018 with social media and like you don't have a Twitter you don't have an Instagram nothing like that no. we intimately know and understand our celebrities now mm. you know we feel like they're best friends we, we see their, their flaws whatever we know their political opinions mm-hmm. you're very quiet politically mm-hmm. and I suppose the, one of the main reasons that we're sitting on this couch today and we want, want to talk about was the upcoming referendum in Ireland yeah. around repealing the 8th amendment yes and giving women, uh, giving people who can get pregnant the choice over their bodies. Um, and you're now in a situation where you're going, yeah, I want to chat about that. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Well, you're shitting it. N- no, I mean, I, you know, I've considered it for a long time. And um, I suppose, you know, in terms of the kind of background or context, we've, we moved home from London. You were living in London, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for a long time, 14 years. And we moved home, my wife and our two boys to Dublin and we moved just before the marriage equality referendum. And, uh, so you, you arrived into an Ireland that was quite politically engaged at yes. that time. And, yeah. and, and it was, so we registered and got to vote and, and you know, it was this amazing positive kind of coming together for the nation. It certainly felt like that and we were like, wow, this is amazing decision by the nation, you know, as and, a society. And how was that for you, like, having left Ireland, you say, a good few years before? Did it mm. feel like, fuck, I'm after walking into this new Ireland here? Is that, that, a, did a it feel bit, like that? A little bit, i got to say. It really did. And it, and, it, and, it, and it felt like, right, if we're going to raise our children in this society, this is, this is a good move, you know? This is a good step forward. And, um, it, you know, I kind of felt very proud to be coming home. I think we all did, you know, at that stage. And then the other thing that happened was... Uh, I said, I think Brexit happened like a year later, and that was kind of the opposite feeling because you know the, the the London that we loved and that that, that li- living in the UK we loved living there. All of a sudden, it appeared to me they'd made a massive calamitous error. Do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Uh, and well, it's one. F- it's it's the double edged blade of democracy right there. I mean, the marriage referendum that is the beauty of democracy. That's mm-hmm. the people going. Hold on a second. Let's work towards a better, more equal society. Yeah. Brexit is. It's democracy, but in this, I don't feel Brexit was fully democratic because I feel there was so much informa- misinformation, misinformation yeah. that you have to wonder someone's not playing fair. Yeah, yeah, and yes. And, and the thing that the, the, the statistic about that that struck me very much, and I think it applies to this discussion today, is that, you know, amongst young voters, 70% of young voters voted to remain. Yeah. Right, yeah, and it, and it, and it struck, and they're going to inherit, yeah, this, you know, or this decision to leave the EU, right? And yeah, all they're going to feel these the 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 consequences of that much much more acutely than I think the older generation. And I feel that in this debate now, you know, young people with repeal, yes, yeah. that 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 the young people need to realise that that they are going to inherit this decision. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Uh, and 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 I feel. I kind of feel strongly about that because I have two boys, you know. Uh, and yeah, it's for me, what, what freaks me out, what, what has me kind of feeling trepid about the up... Like, obviously, I'm voting to repeal the 8th. Mm-hmm. I'm men, young yeah. lads, that's, that's what has me frightened because, like, 
I, I'm never going to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I don't have those organs to do that, so it's it doesn't physically affect me. Yeah. However, I want a, a I want a fair society where uh, people who are getting pregnant are not criminalised if they want to terminate that for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, I'm concerned that young lads in particular are just going to are going to be a, a, a apathetic. Yeah. So like. Do you enjoy voting? Well, I remember, here's the thing. I remember being like 18 and, you know, being like fed up with everything, you know, fed up with like society, fed up with the, you know, political system, fed up with myself. And then you kind of go, actually, this voting thing is amazing because you have a chance to change it, right? Yeah. The thing about a general election is you might just change the numbers in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and maybe get an independent TD or something. Yeah, yeah. But with a referendum, you can go in. And if, if this passes, then the, it, the constitution changes immediately. It's a done job. Like it's, it's fantastically powerful. You have powerful. pure like, autonomy as a, as, a, as a... You become de Valera. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, yeah. Um, the sense of, uh, I don't know, a patriotism. Yeah. Do you know, it's fair to call it a patriotism, you know? I think so. Um, if we take patriotism to mean your society being a part of it and actually your voice truly mattering. Yeah. So... That's as well why I want the deadline to register for voting is the 8th of May. Yes. And young lads need to get out and register before the 8th of May if you want to actually exercise your voice and feel that power and feel it's not only it's a good thing to do for yourself, it's a good thing to do for your society to exercise your voice like that, yeah. you know? I think so. And that's that's the crucial thing that, you know, we're men and women are custodians of this society. We both mm-hmm. decide about what's going to happen for our future, you know, and I feel that very, very strongly. And I think, oh, you know, it's it, you can be well-intentioned and say, look, it should be for women to decide this, but we need to go out and support women yeah, on this. Yeah, it's a societal I think that's, issue. That's really, really the thing that, that has hit home to me most, because I have a lot of friends that are out canvassing and a lot of friends that are working on behalf of various campaigns. And, and then you hear that from men that they're, you know, they, they, they support it, but they're like, you know, we don't want to get involved. Actually, that's not support. Un- not. Unless you're going out there actually exercising the vote yeah. that you have a right to, then you're not supporting it. That's, you're that's, cheering from the sidelines. That's what we all need to do as men. I yeah. Think. Here's the opportunity to put on the soccer boots and actually try and score a goal. There you go. It is like... Yeah, yeah. So w- one thing you've done recently, right, which has been a massive success, right, is Peaky Blinders, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I fucking... I, I tell you what I love about Peaky Blinders and I'll get killed as an Irishman for saying this. Like, it's set in... 1917, 1918? Yeah, well, I think we're up to, like, 26 or something. Go away. Oh, yeah, sure, it's jumping. Yeah. Um, I, as an Irish person, was raised with the narrative of the Brits that did their thing in Ireland and they sent over the black and tans and all of this, and I, I viewed Britain as pure privilege. Mm-hmm. When I look at Peaky Blinders, it makes me see, hold on a second, the working class of England... They didn't have it great. Mm-hmm. And what it also makes me realise, when, when Tommy Shelby is, is you know, the, the narrative of Tommy Shelby is, he's shell-shocked. Mm-hmm. And what he was going through in the, in the, the trenches and the tunnels. Yeah. Peaky Blinders was the first time that I reflected on the British working class and the Irish working class are a victim of the same system. Yeah. Even though Ireland was colonised, yeah. the lads that were being sent even to Ireland as Oxies or whatever, they might have been doing terrible things, but they themselves are victim of a, of a class system and the only people that benefit from it are those at the top. And Peaky Blinders maybe really realise that and reassess. Because it's something I always say too, you know, when I, I speak about colonialism a lot on this podcast, and I always remind, when I use the word Brits, mm. I always remind my British listeners, I'm not speaking about you, I'm not spoken, speaking about the British people, I'm speaking about the, the elite Mm. that have always driven this, that have driven colonialism and, and, and used off the backs of the, the working class in, in England to let that happen. Um, so that's the one thing for me with, with Peaky Blinders. But did you expect it to become as big as it, as it did? No, I don't think anybody did. It, it, uh... it wasn't... It was first just commissioned the BBC, wasn't it? There was no speak of Netflix or anything like that. No, yeah, it was, it was one commission. We did one series and then, you know... You, you kind of hoped that it might be recommissioned and it, then it, it came back and it grew very slowly, you know, and I think it grew in the right way, which is... Was Netflix a, a driver for its... Uh, yes, but, you know, 
the way it really grew was just because the BBC can't advertise and Netflix yeah. only advertise on their their platform. So it, it grew just between like between people and word of mouth. That's how mm-hmm. it grew, very very incrementally and and slowly and and which was brilliant. And then all of a sudden, people started walking around with the haircut and walking That's around. That's what I love. The fact that the it suit. is, you know, it's defined fashion for young lads today, very much so, you know? It's mad, yeah. To have that Peaky Binder look. Um, I love as well the backstory of Tommy Shelby and the, the Ro- is, it, is it Roma Gypsy? Is that his, his shtick? Yeah, yeah. He's half Romany Gypsy, yeah. Yeah. And there's, because there's one line you said in it, did you have to, how did you learn? Did you learn a bit of Roma? So you do yeah, that you, or? Yeah, you, you can. It's, it's a really difficult language to learn because it's not based in kind of any of the Latin languages. So you, it's just, you have to learn it uh, totally. Um, is, is it like, is it a slang or is it a proper language? Oh, it's a proper language, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's a proper language, yeah. Um, one thing as well that I adored, there's a couple of scenes where it's just you and Tom Hardy. Oh yeah, <laughs> that for me, it's like I want to. It, it, there's a Beckett vibe off it. Do you know what I mean? It's like I, I would like to see just that, because there's an intensity between the two. E, it's just it's it's two fucking top class actors doing their thing in that room. Like, what what's it like working with Tom Hardy like that? It is. Do you I, get on with him? Is he a good? Ah, yeah. Well, we've known each other for a long time, but I'd say he's a good laugh. Is he? Uh, he he's an amazing fella. And like you know, you've seen his films. Like he's a powerhouse. You know. But the the the, the thing that I think makes those scenes interesting, or any of the big two hander scenes, is the quality of the writing. They're mm-hmm. like a six eight page scene, brilliantly brilliantly written, and you only have to just do justice to the writing, and then you're away. You know. Yeah. And but I also think like a lot of the time the show is just people speaking in rooms. And yeah, that's you, true. And there's some set pieces, but a lot of the show is people speaking in rooms. And again, if the if the writing isn't good there, you're it's not. Of work, course, you know? yeah, you can't have it. Mm. Um, fucking hell! So thank you very much for being on the podcast. <laughs> Best pleasure. of luck to you, and uh, I look forward to seeing what's happening next. Yeah, likewise. Yort. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there you go. Thank you very much to Killy and Murphy for coming out in support of repealing the Eighth Amendment. Uh, thank you to Yvonne McGuinness and Michelle Darmody for making it possible. Uh, it was their idea. But, uh, yeah, I can't say it enough times. The deadline for registering to vote is the 8th of May. So please do that, lads, and get out there repealing. I think we will have our ocarina pause now. Because it's 37 minutes in. The Ocarina Pause is a kind of a digital Angelus where the app that this uh, podcast is uploaded upon, Acast, they insert digital adverts. Some bullshit that they're selling, don't know. But if you're lucky, you won't hear an advert and you will instead hear me very gently play my Spanish clay whistle, the Ocarina. So here goes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Oh yes, so soothing, so funky, the ocarina. 
Um, so I had a bit of a hot take there at the the end of, of that interview with Killian Murphy because I just listened back to it there myself too. And it's the hot take about the we'll say the fucking British soldiers that occupied Ireland during the nineteen the late you know 1920 contextualizing them as victims. That's a bit hot. That's almost too hot, takey, from my behalf because. A lot of the black and tans and auxiliaries were actually of the officer class, you know. They would have been posh boys. They would have been part of the system. But when I speak about, we'll say, the downtrodden working class of the British soldiers, there certainly were some fucking, just normal fucking soldiers from the slums of England in occupying Ireland in the nineteen early 1920s. And I tell you how I know this, actually. And this is an interesting thing. And I didn't bring it up in the Killian Murphy interview. And I don't know why, because I forgot. But the film that I did bring up, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, uh, which I love because it's a Ken Loach film. It was one of my favourite directors. But the it's, it's a semi-true story, okay? It's kind of based on events in West Cork around between 1918 and 1922 in Tom Barry's flying column. And my grandfather and my two granduncles were in that flying column in West Cork. So the events of Wind That Shakes the Barley, uh, certain things that happen in the film, and there's an ambush which is based on the Kill Michael ambush which my grandfather was in. Um, My granddad wrote memoirs about his time in the IRA in the 19... 19- uh, early 1920s and 1918, 1919 and I have those memoirs and I've been reading them for fucking years and my granddad and his family they captured a British soldier and they had him prisoner in the house for nearly two or three months and it wasn't even it wasn't like kept him prisoner in a in a, in a like, he was a prisoner of war, but he wasn't, like, locked away. Like, after a couple of weeks, this British soldier was basically dressed up like a paddy. And from my granddad's stories, like, he kind of liked being a prisoner because it meant he wasn't out as an auxiliary getting shot at by the Ra every day. And he started to help around the farm and dig ditches and kind of be happy that he wasn't fighting and was a prisoner with this family. But the one thing, my granddad couldn't understand a word coming out of his mouth. Not a fucking word. And he couldn't understand my granddad. Because this was 1921. There was no television. You didn't hear British accents. You certainly didn't hear working class British accents. And, yeah, they couldn't understand each other. And my granddad died in the early 1980s. And I know my dad telling me that... One day, EastEnders, I think it was, was on television. My granddad recognised the EastEnders voice as the voice of this British soldier that was held prisoner back in the house in West Cork. So that was an East End Cockney accent. So there's no way he was a posh officer. Do you know what I mean? Um, As far as I know, I think that soldier was... uh, he was to be traded as a prisoner for some IRA prisoners. I don't know what happened to him. He may have been shot on the orders of Tom Barry. Not sure. I would love to read out some of my granddad's memoirs of his time in the Ra in Tom Barry's flying column someday. But I'd have to change a few names and things like that just to be sensitive to families. And I'd have to get, probably just have to ask some permission if I was to do that because it just feels a bit weird, you know. Um, but yeah, that's when I want. That's one of the things for wind, wind that shakes the barley for me. That's so fucking phenomenal. Is I I knew some of those stories beforehand from just reading my granddad's recollections. But digressing again. But it, it, a lot of them were the the the, the black and tans and them were of the officer class. But World War One, you know, World War One was when the system, the British imperial system, just basically. 
cleaned out its its neglected slums and sent people to the fucking trenches. You know, that's the did. Those people are victims too. Victim victims of a an imperialist capitalist system. You know, only a very small percentage of people um actually benefit from that. It got me thinking about fucking class poet by the name of, of uh, Siegfried Sassoon. And Siegfried Sassoon, you might remember him from the Leaving Cert, but he was a war pro- poet. He was a World War One poet who was sent off to the trenches in World War One. And after a while, after seeing so much death around him and the pointlessness of it, he had a little protest and ended up... Uh, being declared mentally unwell and was sent to a mental institution for soldiers but he has a most magnificent poem called Base Details which is a critique of how the victims of World War I were only the poor you know and I'll read it out for you if I were fierce and bald and short of breath I'd live with scarlet majors at the base and speed glum heroes up the line to death. You'd see me with my puffy, petulant face, guzzling and gulping in the best hotel, reading the Roll of Honour, poor young chap. I'd say, I used to know his father well. Yes, we've lost heavily in this last scrap. And when the war is done and youth stone dead, I'd toddle safely home and die in bed. Fucking savage poem from Siegfried Satsun there from 1918 and a vicious critique of World War I from a dare I say it a dangerously Marxist perspective and I don't know enough about Siegfried Sassoon but I'm sure he would have would have been accused of Marxism with stuff like that because like that was 1918 and the Russian Revolution I believe was 1917 but a, a savage fucking poem and what I find interesting too about a lot of Sassoon's work is he, he was all about realism. Do you know? He was about very unapologetic, realistic, gory descriptions of the battlefront. Do you know? He wasn't necessarily looking for metaphor or allegory. It was straight up blood, bones and guts almost like gore metal you know if you ever listen to a band like Cannibal Corpse there's a similarity in their lyrics to the brutality of Siegfried Sassoon and I've spoken before about the art movement known as Dada uh, which would be if I had to say I had a favourite art movement it would be Dada and Interestingly too, if if you contrast with say the work of Siegfried Sassoon and the work of the Dada artists, which are both responses to World War One, you get right there the contrast of modernism and postmodernism. Sassoon with that realistic honesty is firmly modernist. Dada with their bizarre irony is the birth of like proto postmodernism. Dada too was a response to the sheer brutality and madness of World War One, but where the where Sassoon chose in his art to represent realistically the gut wrenching horror of war, Dada kind of took it a step further by going, "This this is so insane. This this war, this mechanized industrial war, is so mad and so insane." that even something like Sassoon where he's trying to give a literal description of what's happening those words themselves will fall deaf on the ears of safe civilians because they don't have a context so Dada were like let's do something mad so the artist Marcel Duchamp got a toilet and put it in a gallery and called it art and that was his response to World War 1 you know how can we have beautiful pictures or poems? How can we have anything critiquing society when society is currently beyond critique? There's a Jax in a gallery. It's art. It's a urinal. 
deal with that and sort your shit out. Also, myself and Killian were talking about site-specific theatre, which is... If you haven't seen a piece of site-specific theatre, I urge you to go and see a bit of it, right? Um, It's a form of socially engaged art, right? I speak a lot about... As you know, I'm, I'm fucking hugely passionate about art. And it pains me when art is placed beyond the reach of regular everyday people. When art goes up its own hole. When it's elitist. When, it, when art uses unnecessarily verbose language to describe itself. And the average person on the street goes, I don't like this art. It just makes me feel stupid and excluded. Well... Theatre, as a form of art, has, you know, that can go up its own hole. Um, some people would say the likes of modernists like Beckett, who I fucking adore, but some would critique Beckett and say that, you know, Beckett minimalised theatre so much that it became so absurd that it was inaccessible to anybody who came to the theatre. Whereas you go like back to the likes of Sean O'Casey, Something like The Plough and the Stars, which I had the pleasure of seeing a great remake of that in the Abbey about two years ago. But with Sean O'Casey with The Plough and the Stars, that play is essentially... It's just it's, 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 almost, it's just Marxism, but in the form of characters. But even with Sean O'Casey's play, this was a play that was written for the average person of Dublin. And there's moments in it where the actors address the crowd. Because O'Casey would have been aware that, you know, the average kind of theatre goer would have been a, a posh, haughty, haughty person. And if he's to get the actual, you know, the people who would have been affected by the 1913 lockout in Dublin to go and attend this play, he needs to engage them. And they might be roaring and screaming in an, in without kind of etiquette at the stage. So some of O'Casey's characters break the fourth wall and address the audience. Which is certainly a socially engaged perspective. But I've digressed again. Site-specific theatre is a form of theatre whereby there's not even a stage. Um, Like, a site-specific piece of theatre could take place across an entire building. And you as an audience member you can nearly interact with the actors. It's almost a fully immersive experience. And you could go and see the play every single day for a week and each day you will see a different play. I saw a fucking unbelievable site-specific piece of theatre in Collins's Barracks and it was called Pals and it was by Anu Productions, A-N-U. If you want to see any decent site-specific stuff, uh, Anu Productions, keep an eye on whatever they're doing. But in Collins's Barracks, it was a play about it was it was about a story that happened in Collins's barracks during World War One about a group of lads I think they were from the south of Dublin they might have been posh but all of these lads went off to World War One and died and the play takes place in their last night in Collins's barracks before they would have been shipped off to Gallipoli I believe it was and I, as an audience member, they, they had recreated this dormitory exactly as if it was 1914, 1915, whatever it was. And I sat on a bed, and the other audience member sat on a bed, and the play happened all around us. And certain actors would have conversations in the far corner, and I wouldn't be privy to these conversations, because I'd be on the other side of the room. But the audience members that were on that side of the room heard those conversations. So everybody in the room got a different play. And it was fucking amazing. It was absolutely incredible. So if you want to be truly engaged by art and theatre, go and see a piece of site-specific theatre, please. Um, I've been thinking a lot recently about virtual reality and... You know, I'm a fucking writer, so I want to start writing for virtual reality because it's the new technology. But it's difficult because if you've ever used a virtual reality headset, you as the observer, you've got a full 360 degree view. 
So for the director, it's difficult to focus the observer's attention on one thing because you have full choice to look around whatever you want. But I think the key to writing for virtual reality, if you were to write a piece of drama or whatever, it's to use the writing techniques of um, site-specific theatre in that multiple events can be going on all around you and you have the choice to engage with whichever one you want. Here's a boiling, boiling, boiling hot take. Site-specific theatre is almost a quantum type of theatre. And uh, the reason being is that you can see two different plays at once. Like, with, with quantum physics, there's this thing called a quantum superposition where something can be two things at the same time. And that's what site-specific theatre is. You're at the play, but various elements of the play are happening at once. And how you experience that play depends on how you observe it. That that take is so hot, um, I can't tell if I'm simply talking out of my arse fully, completely talking out of my rectum or not. So, anyway, what else have I got to say? Oh, yes. The part of this podcast where I beg for, from you. This podcast is supported by you, the generous listeners, um, via the Patreon page. What I would say to you is, if you enjoyed this podcast and you liked it and you had a bit of crack, and you would like to buy me a pint or a cup of coffee, please do go to patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast and you can donate to this podcast um the price of a pint or a pint of a price of a cup of coffee once a month please do it's i really really appreciate it it's fucking fantastic and it's a nice model as well to have the money that's coming into this podcast to be funded and supported by ye you know when i made this podcast like i was able to say straight out yeah that i'm fucking repeal the eighth I don't have to present the other side. I don't have to get some fucking Catholic lunatic on here disagreeing with Killian Murphy because I don't take any BAI funding. This is a 100% anarchic free medium right here. Completely... No one's pulling the strings here. You know, this is my creation and I consult with G and that's it. And fuck RTE, BBC, whoever... This is ours, and no one can do nothing. And there could be ten people listening to it, or a quarter of a million. It doesn't matter. It's a very democratic, socialistic medium. And, yeah, please donate. And if you don't have the money, and you don't want to donate, if you want to just listen to it for free, you absolutely can. That's completely fine. Alright, Yort. Let's answer a couple of questions. Sam asks... What's your position on death etiquette? Seems no matter how much of a dick someone is, as soon as they die, they're some kind of saint. I.e. Maggie Thatcher, and a recent example is Avicii, dying. The man was slated to fuck by the same people praising his name when he died. What's that all about? I think it comes down to respect, do you know? Um, Like, I was certainly was no fan of Avicii's music. Do you know, I really, really... And I, I'm a musical dustbin. I fucking... Ad- I love all music. I go out of my way to appreciate pop music. Out of my way to really listen to it with fresh ears. And Avicii was just... just I, I really struggled to find um, artistic value in it, you know? Because he... Ah, man, he was mixing fucking almost country music and, and happy hardcore. It, like... Just did nothing for me. But for someone to die at, I think it was, was he 28 or 26? For someone to die that young from alcoholism is fucking heartbreaking. And his, it does, I don't care what music he fucking made. That's only an expression of his, that's only one aspect of his behaviour. You know, and it says nothing about him as a person. So when I heard that he fucking died, it did sadden me. You know, I've I've had very little interest in Avicii up until that point, and like I said, I had a rare contempt for his music. But to hear of someone that age dying from 
mental health and alcoholism and especially the fact that it was the, the alcoholism that went along with his fame that's fucking heartbreaking so it just didn't feel right on the day for me to be dragging up his music because his music does not define him as a person Maggie Thatcher different story you know that's a different story Um, Oliver Cromwell like Oliver Cromwell was such a cunt they they dug him off after he died and beheaded him but you gotta have I don't know it's basic respect I suppose there's a little bit of time that you wait and then you kind of launch into it but It's just what we do. It's just what we do. you got to have a certain amount of... I think what it does is that... It brings up our own death anxiety. You know? We all fantasise about our funerals. No one wants to be called a cunt at their own funeral, you know? Um, It's a weird one. Maria asks... I'd love to hear your thoughts on daydreams... In the grand scheme of mindfulness and mental health. I was touched on briefly in the Kevin Barry interview... When he stressed the importance of mindlessness... Negative daydreams like imaginary fights and worries are obviously serious obstacles to mindfulness and positive mental health. But do you think there's any benefit to positive daydreams or fantasies? Or would you also consider a hindrance to mindfulness and finding a happiness in your day-to-day life? If you're effectively living in a fantasy world instead of the real world? Well, no. Um, Like I explained at the start of the podcast, I'm a professional daydreamer. When I'm writing a short story, it feels the exact same as when I was daydreaming as a kid. I'm just very constructive with it. Like, obsessively daydreaming around negative things, where it, you know, when you're daydreaming about an argument that you'd like to have with someone or an argument you had, um, which is a very common thing with people, which can lead to mental health issues. You know, if it gets your blood boiling or your heart racing or you start to feel as angry as you would be in that situation, you know, consistently over the course of a day, that is the exact opposite of mindfulness. That that will lead to stress and unhappiness and a sense of injustice. So that type of daydreaming needs to be curbed. But imaginative daydreaming, where it's pleasurable and enjoyable and... It can be, you know, quite creative. I see no harm in that. Unless it, you know, becomes an escape or a barrier from your real life. But that's... That's play therapy, you know. Carl Jung stressed the importance of adults to maintain their ability to play. You know, when we're kids, we daydream all day long. We play with crayons. We get down on the ground and fuck around with sticks. Young stressed that this was very important for the mind of a healthy adult and I'd agree with him 100% I suppose it has to do with your, with your attitude towards it people can fantasise positively in an unhelpful way they fantasise about love if they fantasise about someone they can't have and they live in the pleasurable dreams or fantasies of being with someone who has rejected them or isn't interested in them and stuff like that that's not helpful even though it's momentarily pleasurable it's about moderation I think you know um, my positive daydreaming has a a very real uh, impactful and beneficial effect on my life but I don't use it as escapism to the point where it negatively affects aspects of my concrete existence do you know what I mean but Jesus we can't be mindful all day long you know you can't be doing that 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 is an ideal self that's not the human way we should be mindful we should strive to be mindful in as many things that we do as possible but mainly to minimalize that type of mindlessness where you're obsessively focusing on negative things that might happen and negative things that have already happened things that you can't change and that when you listen to your body it's quite clear they bring up 
the physical sensations of anger or anxiety. Mindfulness seeks to limit those experiences. They're unhelpful, okay? They're really not great and you end up having an imaginary sense of injustice. I think that's all we've got time for this week. Um, I'd have answered more questions, only I don't want the podcast to be too long. So I'm going to see you next week. Um, Enjoy yourself. The weather is lovely. The weather is fucking gorgeous. Um, Last week at the end of the podcast, I spoke to you about how I was looking for, consistently looking for crayfish in the water. And I got a lot of responses on Twitter of people telling me that there's crayfish in a lake near their gaff or in a stream. I was told that there's crayfish up in the Clare Glens in a stream that I have looked into many a time looking for crayfish. Uh, someone told me that I need to be looking under rocks. So thank you for that. Another thing, what I plan on doing this summer, because there's a very dear beauty in it to me. Um, There's a fantastic beauty in drinking a can or a bottle of rain, or sorry, a bottle of, of, of wine, in, in, a summer, in the summer rain. Especially down by by Yorty's couch. That's something I'm gonna. I, I'll do it once or twice every summer. Nice fucking summer torrent of rain where the temperature is warm, and you finders have dry underneath a tree, and do a small bit of drinking, a bottle of wine or or a few cans. There's a trim. I love that. I love that so much. There's a real beauty in that, and it's one of those things as well. It, it, you know, I've spoken before about being grateful, having this bag on my head. I couldn't do that if I was Des Bishop and people knew who I was. Do you know, but I can quite happily, once or twice during the summer, go down to that river, sit under a tree with a bottle of wine, and enjoy the fucking lovely wine and enjoy the lovely rain. And I can't wait to do that. That's one of my favourite things to do. But if I was recognisable passers-by would go look at poor old blind boy he's fallen on hard times he's drinking wine in the rain no I haven't I'm mindfully enjoying a single bottle of wine in the rain because I find it to be an aesthetically beautiful experience and it's no different to what you do on your couch okay so mind your own business but luckily I have a bag in my head so I'm just some lad drinking wine and no one cares and they can judge me all they want. It doesn't matter. It's not going to end up in the Daily Mail. Alright, God bless. Have a good week. Absolute shower of lovely cunts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.